Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Hello, this is Stuart Wright of the Bitflix Podcast. Just to let you know, there was a few technical difficulties uh, recording this podcast with Barry Sandler. Nothing that uh, hindered the conversation, but um, around about the 18 to 20 minute mark, there is some um, sort of static interference on the line. I tried reconnecting and it didn't go away, but then eventually it does go away. So uh, hopefully it's more of a kind of uh, inconvenience for a short while. And then as you're listening to it, you don't notice that it actually just goes. Okay, well, look, it was a great conversation talking to Barry Sandler about his experiences working with Ken Russell and writing the screenplay, Crimes of Passion. Welcome to another BritFlix.com podcast. My name's Stuart Wright. And today I've got with me screenwriter Barry Sandler. Hello, Barry. Hello, Stuart. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. And what film is it that we've come together to talk about? Because it's not a new one. It's not a new one. It's uh, Ken Russell's film of Crimes of Passion from 1984. And this is to mark a a, a Blu-ray release. Is this the first Blu-ray release of the film? Arrow just put out a uh, Blu-ray release. It's the first Blu-ray release of the film. And uh, it's uh, it's a pretty elaborate uh, two disc, disc set with uh, deleted scenes and audio commentary by Ken and, and me, and um, a restoration of the film and uh, an interview by Rick Wakeman and I do an interview and uh, a lot of extras. Uh, so it's a it's a pretty. Um, uh, a well put together uh, Blu-ray, and it, uh, I took a look at it. It looks terrific. It looks great. Yes. Uh, cinematography comes out beautifully on it. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a, a very typical Arrow release. It's very comprehensive yes. and uh, and bringing bits of things you've never seen before. Yes. So then, let's talk about Crimes of Passion. I guess for for the people that haven't ever seen it, um, do you want to give a brief synopsis as to what it is? Well, it's. Um, Thematically, it's a, it's an examination of the psychology of sexuality, and it's about uh, two uh, relationships, two very contrasting relationships, which ultimately are, are similar in their ways. Uh, it's the story of a, uh, a beautiful young woman, uh, Joanna Crane, played by Kathleen Turner, who is a, uh, a, a very successful fashion designer, um, who at night uh, goes into the red light district and uh, puts on a china blue dress and, and um, becomes a $50 hooker. And uh, she does it for her own 
the psychological needs of power and control, and she meets a very uh, demented uh, street preacher, or at least a man who pretends to be one, played by the brilliant and demonic Anthony Perkins, and uh, he is her equal, in a way, and the two of them uh, have a very intense uh, relationship. And we parallel that with uh, a young man who was married in the suburbs, kind of an all-American guy, uh, living the all-American life with his uh, former cheerleader, high school sweetheart, uh, <laughs> their two kids. And their marriage, in many ways, is as much of a facade and a pretense as the relationship between China Blue and, and Reverend Shane. And I try to parallel these two uh, uh, relationships and show the differences, yet the profound similarities between them. In the process, uh, Grady, uh, the uh, our American hero, uh, is assigned uh, by uh, the head of uh, uh, Kathleen Turner's fashion design company to spy on her because he thinks she's uh, selling um, patterns to a competitor, and in the process he discovers her double life, and this brings out his own um, sense of adventure and excitement that has been missing from his own marriage, and draws him into her spell. So that's essentially the plot wise, uh, uh, the plot of the film, but we're dealing with themes of intimacy and, and sexuality and um, uh, fear of involvement and the psychodynamics of, uh, of sex and sexuality, and uh, uh, it gets pretty intense. It gets pretty heavy going. But it's a fun ride. I think uh, you'll never be bored by watching it. That's no, no, no. It's got. It's, it's a very. It's while 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 covering fairly what you would call heavy heavy themes. It has a very wicked and black black sense of humor, doesn't it? Uh, ah, as... well, I thank you. I thank you. I, I, I hope to do that. Yes, I uh, I set out to do that. I mean, these characters are, you know, are very. Um, uh, Strong in their in their attitudes toward each other, and they uh, do come up with some um, stinging comments at each other. Yes, indeed. I was saying to you before we started that uh, I'd, I'd recently spoken to Julian Temple about Absolute Beginners, which came out I think two years later after this one, um, but but equally, you know, a thirty a thirty year kind of anniversary release on Blu-ray. And um, one of the questions asked him was, how did he think? It had stood the test of time. And what what do you think when you look at crime, crimes of uh, of passion now, thirty years old? How does it look that's, to you? That's a really good question, Stuart. Uh, uh, interestingly enough, I mean, we're dealing with themes in the film that uh, really kind of transcend the, the time periods. I mean, you know, we're, we're talking about. Um, Relationships and and the, the breakdown of relationships and 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 facades and masks and and um, uh, people who are afraid to be honest with who they are. So I think um, thematically, I th the, uh, the the dynamics in the film are relatable to audiences today. Uh, so I don't think it's dated in, in, in that regard. In many ways, it's actually, um, you know, it, it, the it, it's depiction of sex and sexuality is probably stronger 
than uh, movies are today. And it's funny, I, you know. I, I would agree with I, you. I would agree with yeah, you. Yeah, I, I teach screenwriting and and, and film history. Uh, uh, as well as you know, uh, writing scripts, and I, I show this film to my students often, uh, and students of 2016 look at it and they're pretty shocked by it. You know, they're they're pretty stunned that you can you can do this in a film because they're not used to seeing that kind of um, really uh, a strong depiction of sex and sexuality on the screen. It's so it's, it's, it's the bra it's the brazen nature of it, isn't it? I think that that makes yeah, that, yeah. that makes it stand out from like. Yeah. I, not only the, the, the visually uh, uh, graphic sex, but its attitude about sex, and uh, it, it's um, it, it's kind of iconoclasm, and it's kind of uh, transgression, if you will. No. Uh, and the subversive nature of the film is pretty shocking, and I don't think they're used to it. I think we're living in a much more conservative and conventional attitude of our films, and and you know we're, we're dealing with an era of superheroes and, and comic books, and to see this kind of you know uh, very uh, a strong depiction of sexuality is, um, is is something pretty rare in films. Well, well, I think I was going to say I think you touch on something there, and it's interesting you, you you also work at a university because I think I think I get the impression that one of the things that's coming out of this is like. This is the generation that is the fallout of the sexual revolution that kind of pitted out by the end of the seventies. You know, yes. the idea. I guess by nineteen eighty four, we we realised we couldn't have it all. Yes, and I think you know. <laughs> and I the mean, characters are kind of like magnified versions of you can't have it all, aren't they? Right. The the irony is that the, the film came out right at the beginning of the uh, the AIDS. Uh, well, that was what. I mean, I, I must. I should, I should put a caveat here: is that I didn't see this originally when it came round. I've only seen this two weeks ago, so I am watching it with oh. with with um, two thousand sixteen eyes. And it, uh, it, it, struck, it struck me that it didn't feel like we were on the brink of the AIDS virus. It felt like it was really, it was, you know, it, it felt very yeah. out of step with that completely, which was shocking in itself. Yes, I know. And when it came out, I mean, you know, AIDS was just, uh, there were rumblings of it. Because we, you know, when, we sh uh, when I wrote the film, you know, prior to that, and then we shot it, and it came out in the late 84, they were just beginning to uh, uh, become aware of it, uh, and uh, subsequently, you know, in the '80s, that's when you know it, it tragically uh, uh, overcame us. And um, so, it, the depiction of sex was uh, was prior to AIDS, but then, you know. Uh, we have to endure, you know, the the, the crisis. Mm. So we look at it now. You're right. I mean, it's we're post that, and we're looking at it now from a whole different perspective. But uh, I know when the film came out, not only was it uh, 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 pre ace but it also came out uh, right at the height of the Reagan era. I was going to say, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's very conservative uh, era. Um, we we. We got in a lot of trouble with the ratings board. They wanted us to cut the film. The studio wanted us to cut the film and release it as an R. And uh, Ken had to go back into the editing room seven times. Oh, really? Time, yeah, every time uh, he would cut it and then resubmit it to the board, we'd still get the X rating. And he, it really, uh, it, it practically broke him. I mean, he was so demoralized by this experience by having to cut the film when it came out theatrically as an hour 
um, it had all the uh, you know the guts cut out of the film. And uh, then, fortunately, when it did come out on DVD, but Ken's uh, the uh, cut was restored, and, and of course the Arrow releases Ken's restored cut. Mm. So you're not missing anything. But um, at the time, you know, we really went through a, a painful experience. And, and I worked closely with Ken as the producer of the film to uh, uh, to try to, you know, be a buffer between Ken and the studio. Uh, interestingly enough, the head of the ratings board himself uh, had a long conversation with me trying to get the studio to allow the film to go out as an X rating to kind of re-legitimize the X rating. Oh, really? You know, well, in the early 70s, you had, you know, Kubrick had The Clockwork Orange was an X, and um, mm. Ken's The Devils itself was an X, and it was only later when uh, X became associated with pornography that uh, studios uh, were forced Oh, I see, to I see, right, okay. Yeah, and, and newspapers wouldn't uh, advertise any film that was rated X. So... Um, would, uh, the ratings board uh, had, would, would try to get me to uh, convince the studio to re-legitimize the film and go out as an X rating, but they they wouldn't uh, they wouldn't do it. They didn't want it. I, I, one of the things thematically, what's interesting about the kind of cyclical nature of sexual revolutions is that I feel like what you captured was that first seed where, like I say, people began to realise that we can't have it all. You can't. It's that first realisation that you can't be yes. a housewife, a career woman. Um, you can't be a husband, loving father, you yeah. know, jobs, and, and you can't have faith and you can't have lust, you know, all those kind of things. That, but in, in 2016, you've got this attitude at the moment, which is you've got these two comparable things, which is there's a, there's a direct um, attack on feminism, I think, it feels like at the moment. Yes. And yes. there is like the men's movement that's rising, which is this idea that I want to be a man. Because I guess in the eighties you had the classic Renaissance man, didn't you? Was born the 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 one who could cuddle a child, but also yes. could fix your washing machine. And, and like now, people are going, you can't have both. Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. can't yeah. be alpha male and beta male. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. It's it's funny you say that. I, I I've spoken to a lot of women who who say that they feel just in the last year or so that there's this kind of reemergence uh, of men who really want to assert their power and their dominance to a degree that, you know, we haven't heard of before. And, you know, we're curious, uh, I'm wondering if it's at all tied into the Donald Trump phenomenon, whether that attitude is uh, taken hold in society to a degree that it's affected those dynamics. I think he's the evidence that the pimples burst, as it were. I think I think if, if you follow any kind of... I, I did some research about uh, right-wing... They call it alternative conservatism, which I find hysterical as a name, but there is a whole brand of alternative conservatism, which is sort of asserting that it's better for women to be in the home, it's better yeah. that men have jobs, which is kind of like, that's like 1955. Yes, of course. <laughs> yeah. well, that's the attitude, and it's going back to a, another era. Uh, and I, you know, I think part of that era is, is male dominance. Uh, mm. And I, you know, I thought we had, we had progressed uh, uh, far beyond that, but uh, yes, I think there's an element that does want to go back to that, and I think it plays, and Trump plays right into that. And I think I think it's it's evidence of of a, of a loss of privilege, which I think again your your film is is at this where the seeds of that are just be, are beginning to sow. You know, it's like people are realizing that all that hope, we you've got to choose something. You have to choose one. You sacrifice another, don't you? you yes. Can't. Yes. Yes. 
And it's not dogmatic either. It's very grey. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. look, I mean, the other thing, the, the thing that's really interesting, obviously, is you worked with uh, Ken Russell. And I think looking at the documentary that's on, on, the, on the Blu-ray, you, you say that, you know, 10 years previously, you, you were a student and the, the idea of working with Ken Russell was like one of sort of four directors that you would all love to work with. Yes. So, so obviously you were thrilled to get the opportunity with, um, yeah. with this film. Do, do you remember much about how you prepared for that first meeting and, and, and sort of... Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Um, Ken uh, was very uh, reluctant about uh, doing a film in, in the U.S. because he had a bad experience with Altered States just mm. a couple of years before working with Patty Shayevsky. Uh, who uh, asserted an enormous amount of control as the writer of that film. And the two of them clashed constantly, and it was uh, a very uncomfortable experience, apparently, for Ken. Was, was, so, that, was that just creative differences, or was that contractual control? It was both. I, oh, okay, uh, okay. Was, uh, Ken had a style that he wanted to approach, and Shayevsky uh, uh, had uh, very strong uh, opinions of how the mm. film should uh, should play, and the two of them really um, uh, had a severe disagreements, uh, and I think Ken was burned by that. Mm. Uh, and the, the interesting thing is that he read the we had the same agent. They sent him uh, Crimes of Passion. Mm. He, he jumped at it, wanted to do it, and um, the thing was, I had in my contract that they could not bring another writer aboard. That I was the only writer. And he knew that. So our first meeting uh, was very tense. Uh, he was worried that uh, he could face a similar experience that he had faced with Shaevsky. Uh I, on the other hand, was so um, in awe of him. I, just as a filmmaker, I, I, you know, going back to what you said earlier, that yes, uh, uh, he was like uh, a hero of mine, a filmmaking hero. Uh, in the 70s, and the idea of having Ken Russell direct a script of mine was um, was pretty extraordinary. Mm. So um, I tried to convey to him the sense that I wasn't going to, you know, any assert any kind of authority. Uh, that I uh, I very much. Uh, was um, excited by the prospect of him taking that script and and, uh, and directing it, and I knew any Ken Russell film, uh, the script is going to be filtered through Ken Russell's vision. Mm. But I, uh, but I was thrilled about that because I, I knew you know the, the, he had a specific uh, approach to filmmaking, and I was very very happy to. Uh, hand the script over to him, and uh, well, well I, I, being there on the set, of course, but mm. that's handing it over, but being a partner, really, a creative partner. And I think in that first meeting, it was very uh, um, difficult in the beginning because uh, he was very distrusting of me. He didn't know me, and, and, and f gradually I tried to convey to him the fact that. Uh, you know, I was someone that he could work with and someone that um, we could form a partnership with and that I was not to be considered a threat. I didn't want to direct. I never wanted to direct. And that I was uh, uh, just, you know, really excited and thrilled by the idea of, of, of him uh, directing the film. So gradually it started to, you know, we started to break the ice and he finally came around to 
to accepting that and trusting that. And, uh, you know, sooner, uh, soon enough, we had a fantastic working relationship, and it was a great, great relationship. Uh, he um, had enormous respect for the written word, for the script. And okay. I think part of that was being a writer himself, being a tradition and, and, and coming from uh, that background. Yeah. Uh, uh, that literary background, and um, if an actor had a question about character or scripts, he would, you know, point them over to me and say, you know, talk to the writer. And um, you know, I was there with him every day. We, we formed a terrific partnership, and uh, also a great friendship. And we remained friends for you know years afterwards, and, and kept in contact. He was going to direct another script of mine, and we were in pre-production on it at Vestron. And uh, six weeks before we were all we were proving up and we were casting and six weeks before principal photography the studio uh, went bankrupt they went oh, under, so uh, the film fell apart I, 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 it was made later at a much cheaper scale than the director but um, hello hello yeah yeah oh. I, uh, I thought I lost you. No. Um, anyway, but um, uh, we remained in contact, and in 2009, Florida Film Festival did a 25th anniversary screening of the film as part of the festival, and they brought Ken and, and his wife and Lisa over for the festival, and I uh, got a chance to spend uh, uh, a few days with him here, and it was great. He, we did a Q&A after the script, after the film. Then he came to the campus and spoke to the students. They were just uh, wild about him. And uh, we remained in contact until his death, and uh, it turned out to be a great, uh, a great collaboration and a great friendship. And probably the most exciting, exciting experience of my life. So, given that, that that collaboration was working so well, I think the evidence when you talk about the fact that he he would he would refer actors to you on set where, if they had any questions over their lines. Yes. Um, I thought that was an interesting aspect, and, and obviously proof that he he believed he was collaborating with you, not not. You've oh, yeah, in fact, even in the editing process, uh, I know as one uh, one uh, uh, screening, he wanted to eliminate a crucial scene uh, that I felt we needed, and um, we had a long talk, and I convinced him that the film that that scene needed to be in the film, uh, and he, you know, he, he he finally, you know, agreed. Uh, another scene that he wanted out that I felt we needed, but then he was pressed his point and felt very strongly about it, and then I conceded that. So, you know, to that degree uh, of, of a writer's involvement in, in that editing process is just there, but I, I certainly cherish that. And, um, you know, the final uh, movie uh, is really a, a result of that collaboration. Uh, so, you know, it, it uh, rises or falls on the basis of that. It's, it, it, you, you've chosen a very, uh, I guess, non-traditional kind of storytelling, really, you, you, using the kind of parallel stories. It's sort of, when I, was, when I was watching it and making notes a couple of weeks ago, it was like, I was just wondering, it was, it was like, a, I know Kathleen Turner's the centre of the film, but it's like in, in a traditional who's the hero, it's the, 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 there isn't a kind of hero with a with a problem to solve. It's sort of it's sort of like a it's like a, a stone hits the water and then ripples start appearing. You know, in the kind of in the reality of the film setting of well, which here's an interesting point. I can address the, the screenplay to film Go on. Uh, in the screenplay. Um, the character of Grady really yeah. is the central protagonist. I mean, it's it's his journey. It's all three of the journeys. Yeah. But yeah. he opens the film and closes the film of as course, he's yeah. in the script. And it's really 
his problem is, you know, uh, the hit he won't face or he won't even uh, uh, realize in the beginning is his, uh, you know, his empty marriage and the fact that uh, the, the lack of passion and the lack of adventure and excitement in his marriage and that he discovers through the China Blue character and then Joanna. Um, so in the, the screenplay, he's pretty clearly the protagonist. In the film, um, Ken really uh, was far more fascinated with the dynamic between China Blue and Reverend Shane, okay. between the okay. Turner and Perkins characters, and less so with the Grady uh, Annie Potts character, um, Amy. Uh, he felt, you know, he, he didn't quite understand or appreciate the American idiom and the, the depiction of the American suburban lifestyle uh, nearly to the degree that he was fascinated by the rather surrealistic uh, psychosexual uh, flamboyance mm. of the China Shane uh, character. So uh, when we edited, the, when you know, we came to editing the film, uh, we ran long. The first cut, you know, was uh, 220. Now a lot of those deleted scenes, all the deleted scenes, actually are on the Blu-ray. But uh, you'll notice that uh, anyone who looks at the deleted scenes, they're primarily scenes of Grady and Amy uh, and, and at home. Uh, and there are no deleted scenes of, of China Blue and, and Shane. I mean, every scene of the two of them that they shot are in the film. Ken didn't want to lose a frame of that. But the stuff you know that came out of the film after the first cut is very much uh, the great character and, and the wife. I see. So in the, whereas in the film and the script, the, the great character is slightly more predominant. Uh, in the film, uh, it it becomes a little bit more uh, Joanna China Blue's story. Uh, so that, that's, that's an interesting uh, lesson in the, the script to film. Sometimes uh, you can shift the uh, uh, focus of who the uh, protagonist which, which, is. Which, which explains brilliantly why we don't get the backstory of Joanna's in the same way we get the backstory of, of, uh, of um, Brady's. You know, it's well, it's, here, I'm glad you brought that up. It's a fascinating point because uh, uh, in the script uh, there's a little more explanation of her backstory and Ken very much such that let's not tell the audience where she came from or her backstories. Uh, if we make it a specific reason of why she's doing what she's doing, then we're going to limit audience uh, um, uh, identification to those who have experienced just that. Whereas if we leave it open uh, and let people you know, imagine whatever it was, or let people, you know, uh, analyze for themselves what it was so that anyone can relate to it from their own background experience. And they, you know, wherever they, they're coming from, uh, they can relate to that. And I thought it was a very good point uh, that not to make it a clinical, uh, specific clinical reason for her behavior, but just let the audience bring to it what they wanted to in terms of their own experience in, in uh, forming their own uh, uh, analysis of that character. To the same uh, extent, the same applied to the Tony Perkins character, because I had written him as someone who uh, was a shoe salesman, or actually, you know, in a ladies' shoe store, who would uh, spend the day selling shoes to women. He'd be at their feet all day trying on uh, their high heels, no, not trying on himself. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, what I'm saying. Although with Tony, you never know. But um, 
<laughs> but um, uh, the fact that he was subservient to these women at their feet all day made him want to assert his power at night uh, with the, uh, the women in the Red Light District. And Ken again said, no, let's not give him a backstory. Let's let the audience imagine for themselves wherever he came from. So um, it, it was... Uh, Quite fascinating his approach. It's also to, quite uh, cute as well, then, because the um, the role playing games that China Blue does, where she yeah. gives some truth, as it were, but because it's within the, the realm of the role playing, yes. she could have had a father that was abusive to her, but because she laughs about it in the end, you're yes. never left with you're not you don't leave that scene going. Well, there's some exposition that I need to take on board. You're like. Is that is, is she joking? Is, is is that real? Is that and and in the end it doesn't matter. But it's it's interesting that those little seeds are planted without. Yes, very good point. That's that's exactly what I was going for. That you know, let her throw these out as uh, you know, almost jokingly, but there may be some truth in it. Whether it's with a trick in the beginning or whether it's with Shane, you know, in one of. Uh, her little uh, exchanges with him. It may be true, it may not be true. But then that's part of the theme of the whole film. Mm. You know, what's true, what is real, what is fantasy, what is uh, what is facade, what is reality. So, um, yeah. can, can, I mean, one, one, one sequence that stands out, um, as, as in, I mean, there's two, there's lots that stand out. I don't mean that that isn't, isn't twice related to one moment, but one particular moment that, that feels sort of... Um, Different from the from from the rest of the film is the surreal swimming pool, bride and bridegroom. Uh, is is yes. it on the TV? Is it not on the TV? Cutlery incident. I mean, is was that on the page? That no, that that was uh, it, it was uh, they watched a music video, uh, and then Ken said, you know, I'm going to go back to England. When he went back to England uh, at one point uh, to do a first cut of the film, uh, he was son of Rick Wakeman and. Uh, uh, his daughter, uh, uh, Victoria, and uh, a couple of the people, and he said, let me put together a music video. So that's uh, totally Ken's uh, doing, uh, every uh, frame of that uh, video. Uh, this was, you know, the beginning of the MTV uh, craze, where uh, the music videos were becoming, you know, uh, quite the, um, the rage, and uh, Ken felt uh, it would be a great place for a music video, and uh, so that's that's something he put together. But, but, it, but it works really well, doesn't it? Because I mean, this is—I'll tell you what I was thinking then when I was watching that moment—is is obviously you've got a married couple bored out of their minds. He rests his head in her lap. She switches on the TV. Then there's this weird reflection back at them of a newly wedded couple going through a surreal dance of some description. And, like, the cutlery set, you know, you can go, out oh, a wedding present and stuff, and, like, it all just, like, what a waste getting married was. And I was thinking, wow, that's a really weird moment to take us into. Oh, absolutely. No, the music video uh, does speak to the theme of the film. Yeah. 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 So, um, so uh, in, in your mind, uh, I mean, we've t you've talked about, sort of, in response to my questions and stuff, but, but from, your, from your understanding how the film went, where... where, where in terms of what was on the page, uh, and as opposed to then what ended up being on the film, do you believe that Ken Russell sort of stamp is on the film for you? You know, when you step back from the film and look at it and think about your scripts. Well, it's a it's a good question. Um, I had originally uh, perceived the film to be probably more naturalistic, maybe a little gritty, maybe a little more gritty, maybe a little more. 
um, uh, street. Uh, not so, I wouldn't say darker because it's fairly dark, mm. but um, not quite as uh, surreal in, in some ways that Ken brought to it. Uh, that was the original vision, but of course, you know, once Ken, you know, came aboard, uh, and I really kind of, you know. Uh, Handed over the reins and, and kind of relinquished uh, uh, the visual conception to, to Ken Russell. Um, he uh, certainly uh, filtered it through his uh, through his own uh, vision, and it became the colors and the uh, extravagance and the uh, the flamboyance uh, was something that I didn't quite um, visualize when I was writing it. However. You know what he did to it. I think really brought a whole other dimension to it that mm. you know that wasn't on a page. So while it may have differed from uh, my my own uh, visualization of the film, it was uh, it, it took it in another direction that I thought you know just really brought a whole other life to it that uh, I found very exciting. Um, so uh, while it, it may have differed slightly, uh, it differed slightly in a, uh, in, a in a much better way. So, uh, and, indulge me a second then, there's, a, there's, a, there's a, the, the HP scene, as it were, the human penis scene that happens. Um, yes. that, that, to me, I thought, worked, worked two ways. Uh, it, was, it was beautifully showing him not really getting his, not getting his wife wanting him to be grown up and yes. sort of showing a juvenile mindset, and obviously liberally sprinkled amongst his other male friends, I might add, as well. It wasn't like um, it was just him who'd, who'd stagnated. It was like, it was a lovely way of, of, of sort of showing rather than telling us, yes. you know, here's a man that's stuck in about the age of 19. Um, but equally, it showed brilliantly how how pissed off she was, you know, um, and... and and not being able to work out what it means to be an adult at the same time. So it's like, he won't grow up, but she has got no idea what it means to be an adult, if that's an example of it, kind of yes. thing. Yes, exactly what it was. I mean, it was it was always it was an act of revenge against her because mm. he, uh, he felt she lied to him, so he wanted to take it out on her, and he knew that she knew that he wanted to do it. Uh, so that, you know, that I use those... Uh, um, Psychological dynamics in creating that scene, mm. but you know, on a more humorous note, um, when I went to college uh, in, in uh, the dorm, there was a guy uh, who did that human penis thing for really? all the guys, you know, and we did it at the parties, and it was hysterical. And I thought to myself, I'm going to put that in a movie someday. You have and, to. You have thought, to. Yeah, yeah. So that's how that came about. <laughs> <laughs> I, kept... I, hope, I hope he sees the movie one day and, and uh, recognizes uh, what he what he created. What do you, what I mean? I mean, it's a while. Obviously, it's a while ago. It is, but what do you remember being the, for you as the writer when you were specking this script? What what was um, what were the hardest sort of story challenges for you to resolve? Well, interesting, Stuart. I, the script went through a lot of of any movie I've written. This the script went through more drafts than any other, uh, and you know it went through different uh, uh, focuses on who, who the characters were. At one point, Grady was hardly in the script, um, so I, there must have been forty drafts in the script uh, uh, over the course of a couple of years. I mean, I did spend spend longer writing the script than anything else. Yeah. So. Um, 
uh, finally, you know, uh, it got to the point where um, I just felt, you know, it was right to submit it, and um, that's when we, Ken and I had the same agent, and they said, you know, what about Ken Russell? And I said, are you kidding? What about Ken Russell? Yeah. Hmm. Uh, so that's how, uh, how it came about. But in terms of the, the hardest elements of the script, well, you know, um, I don't think the script was necessarily harder to write than anything else. Um, it just felt uh, I needed to put myself in a particular uh, frame of mind. Yeah. And uh, interestingly enough, I wrote the script at night, and I've never done that before. But this is a script I felt had to be written at night for some reason. <laughs> So I would stay up uh, all night and write the script and then, you know, sleep uh, during the day. Uh, it's the only time I've ever done that, but it's a very nocturnal script. Much of it takes place at night, certainly all the China Blue uh, Shane scenes. Mm. And I just felt it was a, it was the night script, and I wrote it at night. Uh, so in terms of, you know, what was, it was hard, I guess, was on my, you know, was on my... Um, Probably my health, but uh, suffered. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you get you developed a, ha a, a health unhealthy habit of for coffee yes. and yes. Uh, fast food. Yeah. But I did recover, so that's good. <laughs> um, so that that, that 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 segues nicely into sort of into your kind of writing habit, really. I mean, you, you mentioned an approach, but. Um, when, when you're when you're taking that idea, so when you were sort of responding to your kind of writer's brain about this, the sexual revolution and you know loveless marriages and women sexually, you know sexually active women who who who, who want to be dominant and stuff, how did you take those observations and then morph it into a story? What's your approach? Are you, do you are you index card? Are you whiteboarding? Are you straight into script? What's your what's your approach? Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll tell you exactly. And I, I teach screenwriting, so uh, you know I, I convey this to my students as well. When I get an idea, uh, I let it. Uh, I sit with it, and I let it kind of you know take root and kind of you know percolate. And um, I'll always carry uh, a paper and pen with me, and I'll, I'll get ideas, and I'll just jot them down and and collect a whole you know folders full full of notes mm. on a character, on a line, on an idea for a scene. Uh, on any kind of a beat, and I'll live with it. I think, you know, any writer has to do this. Uh, you just can't sit down and write the script. So, uh, you know, this will go on for several weeks where I'll uh, compile uh, just this, you know, a, a lot of notes. Then, you know, I'll get to the point that after I've lived with it for a number of weeks, I'll know after, you know, three, four, five weeks whether this is something I really feel uh, the passion for and the excitement for that I want to sit down and write it. Um, sometimes it doesn't happen. Sometimes, it, you know, uh, the idea will just uh, kind of diminish over the weeks and uh, I'll discard it. But not with this script. I mean, this script was uh, just stayed with me. It just kind mm. of burned inside me, the idea for it. And and uh, once I, you know, talked to people and observed people and really thought about it and thought, where do I want to take these characters? Um, then I'll sit down and take all these notes and examine them and, and then try to construct a story. Uh, I've done the three by five cards. Um, I, for me, it's a little bit uh, easier just to do it on yellow notepads. And I'll okay. just, well, just jot down uh, ideas for scenes and... Um, uh, when I feel you know I'm ready, uh, I'll just construct a storyline uh, and an outline, uh, a step outline, hmm. not necessarily scene by scene, but kind of beat by beat, 
And uh, that, to me, and I tell this to my students as well, is the most crucial and, and important aspect of any script, mm. is uh, getting that stunt outline, because that's your backbone. That's your narrative structure. And once you have that, then uh, it, it's, uh, it's easy to, you know, to create scenes out of, out, of, out of your outline. So uh, the most important step then is, is creating that, uh, that spine of the screenplay, which is um, you know, your, your narrative uh, through line from beginning, middle, and end. Uh, and then you, know, you go off and write the script. But um, interesting side in terms of crimes, um, I had originally conceived of the Tony Perkins character, uh, Shane, as a psychiatrist. And um, I know I talk about this on the interview on the Blu-ray, yeah. but um, a, a Tony had just spent the two years on Broadway uh, playing the, the Dysart character in Equus, in, in Peter Schaffer's Equus, and he felt, uh, he you know, he, he feared that he might bring too much of that character to his portrayal of Shane in the film, so he asked Ken and I if there was a way we could reconceive the character. And uh, it, it was... Uh, the, the timing was at the height of the uh, TV evangelism fraud, where they would find, you know, the, all these TV evangelists who'd go off on Sunday morning begging for donations and send money, send money, yeah. uh, uh, and, and preaching family values and the sanctity of marriage and and wholesomeness. <laughs> and um, then they'd go off and be caught in a sleazy motel room with a hooker. Um, and uh, you know, I think it was Ken that said, "Let's go with that." Let's let him down the facade of a of a, of a preacher, of a phony evangelist. Not phony, but an evangelist who we know is phony. Um, and that's how that came about. So it did kind of evolve through the collaboration of actor and director, along with. Uh, with and and, tell you, and what a, what a brilliant introduction to his character! That that awful kind of plywood board peep show, and oh, he's sniffing right. a presumed poppers or something, you know. And, <laughs> And you're like, who the hell is this? And then he runs outside and he stands on the step and starts reading from the Bible. Yeah, yeah and that takes the, the, the transgression of a Ken Russell and the, the <laughs> off-the-wall nature of a, of a brilliant actor like Tony Perkins to bring that to life. <laughs> and the extraordinary colors of uh, the color scheme of, of Dick Bush are, are JP. I mean, is that? But the detail, the, the, the kind of that, 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 even that arena there, that that, that kind of letterbox people thing, which just looks so cheap and dirty, and the tissues falling in the in the trays below, you can see at foot level and stuff. Is that was that was much of that on the page? Had you had you see, in your research for this? Had you seen this kind of place before? I hadn't seen it, but but I knew they existed. And, okay. Um, when Ken and I uh, met uh, to go over the script, he had a specific, you know, he, he wanted, you know, the the, uh, the elements of the actual room, the the people, and you know, with the uh, the dancer in front. So he was specific in terms of the um, the architecture of the rooms. Mm. I've been, uh, you know, taking those ideas, then I wrote it to be specific for the production designer mm. to take that from, yeah. So, you know, the, the concept was there on paper, but the specifics were um, as a result of the uh, of meeting with Ken. If, 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 just, just to go, go going over the, um, the interview you do on the Blu-ray, not to sort of take, take, take away, steal away and thunder, I was fascinated what you said about when you wrote the film Making Love, yes. about the story of someone coming out, and obviously you, you were saying that you'd, to write it, it would make you grow as a writer. What, yes. In what sense 
did you, because you don't mention this in the interview, so I, I thought it was a question that sprung to my mind. It's like, in what sense did you feel you grew as a writer? Because I mean, I'm a writer myself, so it's like, what fear or reservations did you think you were holding back that you no longer feel obliged to, can, you know, to, as, when you're, when, are you freer on the page? Was, there, was that an immediate release when you, when you tackled that script? Well, I mean, that's a great question, because I know it with Making Love, um, because we were dealing with the subject of, of coming out of, of uh, a young man who uh, ultimately accepts the fact that he's gay and, and, mm. and leaves his wife as a result and, and comes to terms with it, uh, because it was you know groundbreaking in that regard, with no studio had ever dealt with that subject before, certainly not in a positive way, mm. uh, that... But you're still, you're still, you know, limited in terms of what you can show on the screen, and in terms of the actual uh, the sexual dynamics of yeah. that. So, to a degree, um, I was somewhat restrained in the writing of that, um, only because of the uh, feasibility of what mm. we could show from a, a major studio release. Of so, when it came time to write crimes. I kind of opened the floodgates of, um, <laughs> of whatever restraints that I had writing Making Love. It just opened up, and I just let it out and just, you know, went crazy in terms of the sex and the sexuality and the um, the, uh, the dynamics of um, um, breaking free and breaking loose and becoming uh, uh, uninhibited and, and iconoclastic in, in, uh, in, in terms of sexual liberation and freedom. So in many ways, uh, the, the crimes is, is, is kind of a, of a direct result of the restraints I may have felt writing the, pr the previous film. Uh, so you know, it, it, you draw a fascinating uh, uh, dynamic here between the two films. But yeah, there is a real connection. I thought, I mean, just just to drill down really on, onto onto dialogue now, just very just very briefly. Um, I thought. China, China Blue, or, or obviously Kathleen Turner delivered two of two of my favourite lines in the film. There was the first one, which was just "This is this is a fantasy business. You can have any truth you want." When she's talking to the Reverend, which I thought was beautiful, and I thought it also was kind of you could flip it around and just say, "Look, she's she's basically calling you a fraud. She's not just saying I can be what you want. I know you're not what you are. So let's not kid ourselves." But then the the other line, which really I thought was was brilliant, and it's towards the end, is when she says to um, to, to to Brady like that. You're so fucking honourable, which is a fantastic way of saying you're you want to please everyone but yourself. Yeah, I thought it was yeah. really for such a short lap for such a short moment. It was just a brilliantly pointed point because um, yeah. it's not heroic, is it, to leave your wife and kids at all? No. But yeah, no, no, of course, no. Thank you, I, I appreciate that. Yeah, no, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> It's great. <laughs> well, look, sir, uh, I could talk to you all day about this because I'm, I'm really enjoying this uh, this exploration of um, of this film. It's a really interesting film, and there's lots there's lots to take from it in 2016 that you might not took in 1984. So, with this fantastic double Blu-ray release from Arrow, which is out now, um, I say thank you very much for uh, giving us your time on the Britflix podcast. Uh, thank you, Stuart. This has been terrific. I really appreciate it. This is great. If you don't already subscribe to Britflix, just sign up for free at iTunes and you'll get the next episode right after we launch it. Or follow at Britflix on Twitter for links to the podcast to stream from the website directly. Thank you. Hey. 
Hey y'all, Darius Rucker here. You know, a lot of people ask me, what inspires your music? And one of the big things is a strong sense of place. That's why I love my home state of South Carolina and want to share the awesome things it has to offer. From the beautiful mountains down to the sunny coast, it's got it all. Not to mention two of my personal favorites, great golf and amazing food. Come see why I love this place. Visit discoversouthcarolina.com. Oh, yeah. 